Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Aaron Black, who is the Chief Data Officer at the Innova Translational Medicine Institute in Washington, D.C. Aaron is a healthcare information technology executive and data evangelist with more than 20 years of experience in managing successful projects and program implementations in the data space. He has a wealth of experience in healthcare and he tells us about the current state of the use of data and data management in the healthcare arena. We talk a lot about the current challenges in the space and where the use of data is going in that industry. I hope you enjoy the episode. It's a really good one. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Aaron Black. How are you doing, mate? I'm very good. Very happy to be here. Ah, thank you so much for making the time. I've been looking forward to speaking with you for quite a while. So this is uh, very exciting, and I'm sure we're going to have a, a great time. Thanks a lot. At the beginning, could you give us an overview of your background and what your career has looked like to date? Yeah, I think I'm very similar to a lot of the data people around there where we're not, I don't, didn't take an, a traditional approach, I guess, to where I got to. In fact, I don't even sometimes have to remember how I got here to my background. So I actually, when I was in college, I was an accounting major. I don't think anybody grew up wanting to be a chief data officer. So I was in accounting and I just like numbers. I just liked, and there's some satisfaction in the numbers balancing and accounting, that's the world you live in. You want numbers to match and you want what's going out the door to come in and you want profit. And there's measures that you know everybody you know, seems to agree agree upon. I liked it, but I knew that wasn't a long-term curve for me because it's a little boring. Again, there's a lot of practices that are standard. You and There's just not a lot of creativity with it. Creative accounting, I don't think is a class that I took, but I did like the business aspect of it. So I got into a little bit of finance, studying in Europe for a summer. I just got to see a lot of different things that I thought would be interesting to get into. And then I, I took on a second major. My parents didn't enjoy that because it was another year of college, but I did that and uh, got into management information systems. So it was a computer centric business curriculum and they let you do a lot of programming. So I was doing old school COBOL, some more compiled languages. Visual Basic at the time was very hot for Microsoft. Databases were just a little bit of it, but that was the one that I really liked. And we did some web development. So those were the kind of the two areas I really liked. And coming out of college, I was right before Y2K. So Y2K, of course, was, you know, everybody was just really worried that that fourth, the, the extra two digits was going to cause a problem and all the computers are going to break down, the traffic lights were going to stop and the world was going to end. So when I started, I would work for an accounting firm, but they did all they did was systems. So we just would go in and convert old systems to new systems right before Y2K. So I had no understanding of what was necessarily going on with a company, but hair on fire. And I had, I don't think I had hair there either. I would go in across the country. So we were located in like central US, Midwest, and I would fly coast to coast as a kid out of college. So I think 22, 23 and convert people from old systems to new systems. So their old databases to new databases, their old reports to new reports and doing this all through code that I barely really understood. So it was uh, like trial by fire. But I got a lot of experience. And of course, Y2K came and nobody blew up and everybody survived. But that was really how it started. And I just kind of grew in love with, you know, trying to tackle things that were very hard, time driven, and did that for three or four years, opened my own office. So I moved to about two hours, actually for a girl, it wasn't for data, it was for a girl up to a city in um, central Ohio called Columbus. So the Ohio State University, for those of you who might be um, Buckeye fans. So I did that, moved up there, started my own office, and then we started to do 
more of those conversions from old systems to new systems. So I saw access and flat files and think anything you can throw at, at you. People who had built custom proprietary systems that were gone now, they had just gone out of business. So we had to open it up, open up the covers and figure out what the data looked like. And then within two to three weeks, had to convert them to a new system, which we knew that the model was there. So again, it, it just kind of toned me or tuned me to coming in with fairly low expectations, trying to figure things out, put data that was all over the place into a predefined area, and then having to convince business owners that uh, everything was going to be okay. I was a young kid coming in and, and we were doing four or five of these at a time. And I had a small team. It wasn't a very big team. So I did that for a while and realized that that was quite challenging because I was also doing desktop support. We were doing sales and it was a small business. It was not, these were not big corporations. But I happened to uh, run into a, a company that was a startup. And at that time, they weren't really called startups. So think early 2000s and then moved on to medical billing. And that was my first chance to get into medicine in the United States. When it comes to billing from an accounting standpoint, is very messed up. In the United States, if you bill something for somebody, you get paid based on who can pay for it, not what they actually did for you. And it's very convoluted. The uh, United States had changed its law. It's called the HIPAA law. And so their, their billing changed. So the way you would get paid by the government changed. And it was in a think of XML kind of format. And again, very few people in the country could do it. This company just was able to do it. So they were getting so many customers, they could not keep up with demand. And that's when they hired me as a project manager, but just to, again, to convert. So to go to these places that were healthcare systems or small mental health clinics, and I would go and try to figure out what their data system was, convert it to this new system, and then let them bill so they get paid so they could treat their patients. And again, doing four or five at a time when people were panicking that they were going to get paid. So it seemed to be, as you go through my history, it seems to be a trend. You're in these places that are growing and they're trying to find uh, and do things very quickly when there is no path necessarily to do them. I did that for four or five years. And then late 2008, the market crashed in the United States and there was massive layoffs. And I happened to be one of the, that was one of the companies that just could not sustain itself. So I um, had just gotten um, some project management stuff, but I was always a data person. Love the code and SQL, databases and creation and reporting. So think your, your typical reporting type of system. But I got laid off. So the market was crashing. Hundreds of thousands of people were losing their jobs. And there I was with no job. So out of necessity, I had done some, had started a company with a friend of mine doing uh, flipping houses. Yeah, we'd buy these really dilapidated houses and keep them up and then sell them. Well, the market was crashing for that too. But we had these LLCs, these corps set up. So I started my own um, consulting corporation or my own consulting arm of that. And then went out into the market and sold my services as a consultant to people who needed data services. In the next... Uh, after you know the market was crashing, but I went out the, and sold my services, made more money in the three or four months doing that than I did as an employee, but then quickly realized I didn't like selling anything. I just like doing things. So it was, it was kind of stressful to have to sell yourself. And then I got a job fairly quickly. So three or four months later doing um, project management for a regional, uh, was it an insurance company? They had a big mainframe system. It was corporate. I had to put a tie on. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I did that for nine months. And then I got a call from a friend from my hometown who said, hey, I work at a children's hospital in Columbus. They just got a grant or a contract from the National Cancer Institute to build one of the biggest networks for cancer in the country. And it's based around genetics and, at the, and genomics. And at that point, my biology background was probably high school. It was very trivial. I had to look up all the stuff he was telling me. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I really want to do it because I don't want to be in this regional healthcare anymore, this regional insurance anymore, but I have no idea what you guys are doing. So he said, okay, we have six months. They gave us, I think it was $6 million and you have to help us build a team to collect biological samples from people who have cancer. So think cancer tumors in their blood and they're going to send it to us. And then we have to build a, a laboratory system that can intake that information. We have to get their clinical data, which could be years and years in, of history that is in all different formats, put them into an electronic data capture system. And then we have to manufacture these specimens down to the DNA and the RNA that then we send to different centers around the country and then they're going to sequence them. And then you have to capture all that data so that you could submit it to a centralized place and it all has to match 100%. And he said, you have six months. And uh, we have a couple of members of the team. They had an operation to do the business of it, meaning they had the laboratories and some of that stuff. But the, the government was telling us exactly what systems we had to buy. They told us the format to put the data in. It was all XML based, but we had to glue it all together. Of course, again, I like kind of the challenges of that, didn't know much about the business, but I was working with some of the most, you know, the from a genetics and cancer perspective, the best in the country. Let's prove if, if, if I have it. And so six months later, we had at least a working system, wasn't spectacular, wasn't glorious. There's probably four or five of us at the time. So think developers, data architects, systems engineers, uh, more on the application side, and we built it. And we had another sister organization in Arizona that we had to harmonize with. 
A couple of years later, we had to recompete. So it was a contract. So every year, also often you had to recompete to say you're worth your time. The government at that point only wanted one of the, these institutions. And so we had to compete against another institution. We ended up winning that. And then we took on their business. And there's a long story there, but generally now our team was 15, 16. We had added more data people, a lot of application developers. We were Java based and had, had gotten really heavy into XML and modeling cancer data. That's when I knew that this was something I really loved to do. Like I really loved to put together teams. I loved to put together things that were challenging and that we weren't sure of exactly how to do it. Then I got the opportunity to move to where my current job is, which is in Inova, which is a very large health system on the East Coast of the United States in Washington, D.C. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar company, but it's a non-for-profit. And they started an institute for what they call translational medicine, which is where they take research and they try to translate what they find into actual clinical care. So it's for the betterment of patients and they want to do it quicker than just uh, the time it usually takes to take this information and actually treat patients differently. And again, it was around genetics and genomics. So we produce right now very large scale genetic information paired with electronic medical records, and then any other data set that they, a researcher might think is of interest. And so my team right now, in my role, moved from director of informatics to now chief data officer. And now it's uh, one, I used to be at one institute, which would do this. Now I, I oversee a lot more of the research across the enterprise. So whereas we started the research, it was around uh, kids and think uh, mothers coming in for pregnancy. We wanted to see if we could predict if they were going to have a preterm birth or not, because if you have a preterm birth, you have a lot more issues growing up than kids that don't. So if we could actually predict if a mother was more susceptible to having a preterm birth, we felt we could improve the the kids that were being born and we could have some kind of intervention to say, mom, you need to lose weight. You need to take this medication. You need to stay off her feet. Whatever the intervention was, that's what we were trying to predict for her. And obviously everybody's very different. And it was down to the biological level, down to the molecular level is how we were measuring So we put together some pretty novel data sets around that and were able to build some predictive models that had a lift of probably 15, 20% off of what you would see in a published paper. Now, it's very hard to do. So there's a practical application of sequencing everybody in the turnaround times there. So some of, it, some of it became more of a logistical problem than it was a data problem because you got to apply this to business, which is maybe we get into lessons learned. That's what we learned a lot about that project. This is a massive amount of time to put this, these data packages together. But could you implement what you found into the real world? But again, those types of things, we didn't know how to build it. We had to build cloud services and HPC environments, high performance computer environments, working with doctors who had very niche specialties specialties, geneticists who didn't know the medical practice. I mean, really, we became translators in the middle of all of this, knowing that, again, I have no medical background. I have no background in biology. You're really just trying to connect people and get them talking about you know, the standards, which at the end of the day is the data exhaust that they were pulling off these machines and the people that they were tracking. So now we've applied that to the health system. Now we do it cancer. We do a heart and cardiovascular disease. We do neuroscience. Anything that people can throw at us, we try to build custom solutions to provide a service. So that's how I, a little bit of the background, a little bit of where we're at and how we try to help people. So I guess going back to the beginning, what was it about data and the data space that grabbed you and pulled you in? What did you like about it in the beginning? I think it's organization. It's really weird. Like if I was going to tell someone about like why I do the what I do, and there's a definitely a sickness I think to it sometimes, is that if you can think about cooking a meal, like cooking a meal, you're you've got all these ingredients and you're trying to put it together in ways that are pleasing to different people. And so it depends on who you're serving. But I also like putting things in the bins and in the areas so it's even aesthetically pleasing. And I like to clean things up and I like the whole process around gathering things that are disparate, that are messy and putting them into an organization and then allowing them to kind of uh, be creatively used by others. And so, and then explaining that to other people. A lot of data scientists are very heads down and they're very intelligent and they know their craft. But if you can do that and explain that to other people and make them better, I think that's one of the things that separates the good from the great in this type of area. And I think that's not just for data science. I think it's for a lot of things. So to me, that was part of the, the special part of that is that when I learned that and you can see people when their eyes light up, like they want to do it, they see that they want to do it, but you didn't explain it to them. When I was starting to do that's where I felt the most value for people that don't do it day to day. I could explain it to them and vice versa. They could explain their business to me. And it seemed like there was a nice symbiotic relationship that made, makes me happy. If you go into work and you feel happy, it's those types of things. I can take a skill I have, apply it to someone else's skill, and we make you know something really nice and packaged. So that's that's kind of why I think I gravitate towards this is I do have, I think logically, I think analytically, but creatively and try to make other people better. That's fantastic. And what are some ways that you are able to explain these concepts to people that are not from a data domain? 
Well, I think part of it is you have to understand their world. If I'm with a, a medical person, someone who practices in a clinical setting, I'm, I'm going to be different than if I'm talking to a nurse or someone who is a kind of a research analyst or someone who actually has a little bit of a background. So I try to understand who the person is. And I actually even get a lot of feedback while I'm talking to them. Like, just tell me if I'm going too slow. Tell me if I'm going too fast. But I'm very visual. So if there's a whiteboard, so in our office, we painted all the all the boards white. So if you're in the middle of a conversation, we're very visual. Now, I'm left-handed, and so I, I'm not the most gifted person when I write, but that's the way I try to explain it. I try to explain it to them in a way that's more, I think of them as a fourth grader, and then I try to build up. So if they understand some of the core concepts of that, then we start building on top of that. And pretty soon you see these whiteboards that are a complete mess, and there's a lot of pictures being taken of them. But we really try to be very big and very visual, a lot of flows, a lot of um, concepts with big words. But when I want to say big words. I write them big. They're actually very small words, but they're very big for the concepts of you know, data acquisition. We're just grabbing data and we're putting it here. And we're going to do some things to it. We don't like to use acronyms because every, the acronym soup, everybody uses them. And in the medical field, it's even worse than the technical field, actually. So we try to make them very easy to understand. And then, then I try also, if I have a relationship with someone, I try to figure out what they, things they like. So like we had some analysts who loved to buy shoes. She was a, a female. She was in her 20s. She would come in with different shoes every day. And we talked about how we were taking this data and putting it into things. And we talked about her closet and how we were going to organize her closet. The stuff was coming in. We wanted to put her shoes in a certain way, certain colors, and then we were going to stack them. So we were going to put them this way. And then we we get into, you know, the the math of, you know, what would you wear on a particular day? And so again, we try to relate what we're doing to what the person already understands, as opposed to trying to throw a bunch of technical jargon at them that they're not going to understand anyway. And as I've moved from, you know, more of a doer to a strategist to somewhat an evangelist, then you have to actually get to people where you have to show them the business of it. Right. Why are you spending X amount of dollars on cloud services a month and what are you getting out of it? And if you're collecting all this data, why are you collecting it? So we, we actually have a lot of presentations. And honestly, you can Google me because we try to share as much as possible because a lot of the stuff I use in my presentations are from other people. And we're just rebranding it, recataloging it so that because other people do this great as well. And so if you looked at my slide decks, there are a lot of other people's stuff explaining it in a very simple manner. And then if, if I'm in a more technical crowd, I'll add other additional slides, breaking it down further with what they like. But an executive gets think big bubbles, big words. And if they're financial, it'll be all the accounting stuff I learned. If it's in the genomic side, it'll be a lot of the biology that I've picked up through osmosis, not through an actual study. That's kind of how we're trying to translate what we do to other people. Outstanding. And what are the benefits that you've seen in your career from doing that? approach or essentially communicating to people like that, taking the time to explain it. What benefits has that given you in your career? I think people trust that more. When you spend time with them, they trust you more. This is a core principle or a core quality about what I learned growing up from my parents and from being in teams is that you're only as good as your team members. And so you need to build them up. So I think they, when you're in an interaction with someone like that and they feel that way about you, then they, number one, trust you and they'll tell you more. They're not so guarded with their data because a lot of people, I mean, you might have people on here, they're very protective sometimes of, especially in research. They're very protective of their data because sometimes their their livelihood is based on the data they have and what they can publish. So we have to loosen them up. And if they trust you, by it, then they're going to be able to work with you better. And if they work with you better, you're going to get better projects. You're going to get better results. But if you get better results, then you're still going to start to attract more people, particularly in organizations where we're a little bit different than the norm. We're not just taskmasters. We're not just trying to check you off a box so that we can move on to the next thing that is you know, based on some metric that we're based on. We are very white glove. We're very customized. And so building those relationships, making them feel as, as if they're important, and they are, but really making sure that they're, they're like that. I think that's what's helped me. You do a lot of very mundane technical things on a given day. These are the things that kind of take you out of that. That's a difference than I've seen as I've kind of tried almost you know, make that a, an important point when we get into projects. That's really great. And at the moment, what are the groups that you establish those relationships with? So again, it's wide ranging. We're we you know we're a bit of a connector. So you'll get again these uh, let's say uh, an oncologist who has a, a pharmaceutical study who says you know I need to get data matched up between these various uh, parties and I need an analytical environment that my team my staff can then use for that data. So we have people that have a particular project they're interested in. They're more scientific or medical. We have the more of the I would call business operational units. You know at the ground level, it's a lot of very cursory analytical things that we're doing for them. So forecasting, nothing that's truly that sophisticated, but they love it. They're the ones that kind of know what they want. 
they're used to having requirements gatherings. They're used to putting them into Word documents to tell you what they want and what filters and things like that. So they're, we engage them pretty well because we get the results back faster. Where the I would call the bioinformatics scientists, truly data science people, are very demanding, but sometimes it's hard to get the requirements out of them. You know, some people you give them the bare minimum, then you let them build on top of it. And there's some people where you give them uh, like the whole show and then you pull back when they're just like, oh no, that's too much. So again, that's one of those things when you're first experiencing a group you tend to try to read the room or read them on what their technical abilities are. Because a lot of this is, you know, some people do want to get their hands started. They want more than enough. If they want the raw data, they want everything. Some people just say, hey, I really just want you to give me a score. I just want you to give me, should I, you know, what are, what's my decision path? What's my probability? And then we'll go from there. So we work with the business. We work with uh, bioinformatics scientists. We work with medical researchers. And then we just started to work with, um, we have a venture group. So these are venture people that go out and they look at the market. And they find people that have very interesting technology. And so we've also um, started to work with them to say, well, how could we take some of your technology and put that into our clinical systems to, again, increase you know, our patient experience, uh, the quality of care, engagement, think apps, handheld apps that they could have. Think, um, I don't know if you're going to videotape this, but there's like Fitbits that, you know, yeah, you can strap to your body. So we can do all kinds of analytics off of that. And so we're trying to do this, kind of take the next step in healthcare to help differentiate ourselves as a healthcare system, then also, again, increase the satisfaction of our patients. Outstanding. That is really great. And what are some of the challenges that you guys have on the data capture side in healthcare? <laughs> Everything. Large data sets. So in the genomic space, it's very large. Let's say the data standards are very raw and uh, ever-changing. So sometimes think we're just actually capturing large textual files and putting context around. So we're not even really trying to analyze them. We're just trying to put them into a cloud storage and an object store and then catalog them and have the context of when we collected it, who was it attached to, what type of sequencer was it run on, did they do any analytical pre-prep for that? So it's more metadata driven. So there's one kind of element that's challenged us because that's petabyte scale. And so there's a lot of that that, you know, clouds are great, but they're expensive. And when they sit in the cloud, they're not really doing anything. So you've got to start to understand how to move them and what the costs associated with that are. The other side of it is the real-time stuff, you know, the stuff that's streaming, trying to understand how that's different. Are you, are you doing analytics when you're ingesting it? Are you just, again, capturing it so somebody else can do analytics and batch? Do they, you know, what type of response times do they need? So some of this is technical. Some of this is what talent can deal with that data. So you're getting all kinds of different types of data, big data, batch data, streaming data. And then in the electronic health world, let's just say it's messy. They have standards, but you're dealing with people or with systems that are, I want to say this, inconsistently entered in. You then have to wait until, let's say you're tracking patients over time, and then you want to do your analytics, and you want to know, does a particular medication work for a certain population? But you're, this is real-world data. This is not an experiment. So you're actually trying to understand what was the context of why people entered data a certain way. If they messed up a, you know, these drug names are crazy. If they entered in an extra digit, all the minutia around the, the data, just the prep. And we, what we find is the acquisition takes, and the acquisition and the cleanup and the integration takes 80% of the time published studies on how that is, healthcare exacerbates that because it's so much and you have so much trying to put the stuff together that um, the EMR data or the medical record data is quite a lot of it. It's all over the place. Sometimes it's in text notes. It's handwritten or transcribed images. So they take images, brain scans. So they're big and they're blobs of storage. And some people just want to look at them. Some of them, the new thing is you know, image recognition. So now there's, you know, there's a lot of projects that are, are around. Can you start to look at Let's say, they, unfortunately, they have a cancer tumor. You know, can they start to look at the size of that tumor, where it's located, and then do that over time? So if you give them a drug and it starts to reduce the size of the tumor, can they be very specific the way that thing is being reduced based on the actual drug and or cocktail of drugs, the levels that they're giving them at? So, of course, you're dealing with human patients as well. So then there's a security layer on top of all that. Right. You can't just share this data willy nilly. You can't. It's got to be encrypted in disk and at rest. Only certain people can see it. And if they can see it, they've got to have a, an actual approval. On top of all of this in a healthcare system, you layer it on top of patient concerns, privacy concerns, consent concerns that we also have to manage. So a lot of fun. That's a jungle in its own, the data management side around privacy and access and ownership. What are some ways that you have been able to navigate through that jungle? 
Well, it comes down to governance and it's data governance process. And that's matured in our organization quite a bit. There are tried and true ways to request access to be assigned to it. And then the obviously the technical underpinnings of what you're doing. So from an audit perspective, do you know they're touching a particular file or set of files or the patients, do the patient consents a match up with what they're trying to do? So there's that spirit of the research. You want to make sure that they're using the research for the good of the patient, not just because they want to write a paper or they're, we might get into monetization, but there are some ways that you can monetize data. And so we want to be cognizant of why we're collecting the data, what are we using it for, and then can track all that. And then from an audit perspective, if an auditor came in, can we prove that that data was accessed by these people? So some of that is, again, around the governance and then some around is the technology that we want to make as seamless as possible so that we don't have people just on every, that their job is to necessarily handhold or be the watchdog on this stuff. So I think that's a, a place that we have matured quite a bit. And I've seen a lot of new technology coming out that's going to help us with that type of um, security. Nice. And so to date, have you mostly built your own systems or software to do that governance piece or mostly using external software? So a combination of both. So it's definitely a combination of things we built first. Because again, in the, in the research world, in the medical world, we do want to go fairly quickly, especially if we have the consents and we feel we're protected from the outside. But in the new world, we do see these systems that are helping us quite a bit with the auditing, with the other terms, data providence. You get to the end and you've had this particular discovery or something you want to return. We have to go back in time and say, well, where did we get it from? What did, who all changed it? Can we reproduce it? Because that's really the golden holy grail is if we can do that at a nice pace without slowing everybody down, that we can then repeat that. And then again, it could be something we commercialize. It could be something we just use internally. But that's a big deal if we can do that in a seamless way. Huge deal. And have you found any software that has been particularly helpful so far? Internally, we use Cloudera for a lot of our lineage. So they have a, a nice lineage package within. But the issue we've always run into is if we don't ingest it directly into indirectly, there was some pre-processing that happened outside of that ecosystem. We haven't, we've been looking, I don't know if you've run into any people or you have any, any of these podcasts have gotten into this, but we have been looking for kind of a centralized, it's almost like a, a providence or a the full life cycle of data from ingestion and, and it's like a log aggregator. So think Splunk, think these things that, you know, they can just take mm-hmm. logs in and they can track it. Even if it's in not one system, it's in many systems. So we've had to build things that were very, we call it polyglot. We had some cloud stuff that was working because you had to ingest big data from vendors that were not inside your institution. You had um, to process this data down to a, a place where people can consume it. And that's where it might go to a, a Dupra, these bigger, larger systems on HDFS. Or, and then you have to compress it and you have to do all these things to make it build Millions of rows consumable by the software and the analyst can, can actually write stuff that doesn't take weeks to run. And then you have the more traditional ETL stuff that you would get into a traditional data warehouse, right? An application that is um, collecting data at some interval, we're sucking it in nightly, we're doing these five transformations, it's all cleaned up, it's formatted, and then it gets marted and modeled. You know, we have all these different routes of data coming in, but if an analyst who's in the middle of that wants to start to put these things together, you know, how do we do that and track all those three routes plus everything? that they do in the Python code or in their, their Spark job. So those are the types of challenges that and we've talked. I mean, that's a lot of the reasons why I love talking in these things and find out new avenues where people are sharing what they're doing is that we found like banks and financial services and they all have their different ways that they're trying to do this. They've had successes in some areas and some they haven't. So we've tried various things and we're trying to find there's not one vendor or one software that rules the world here. I don't know if that'll ever exist, but we're trying to find the right kind of places to, to fill the spaces in between all those ways that we're yes, yes. touching data. Yes, I completely agree. And I'm the same I've been looking for, as you mentioned, like that Splunk or Splunk equivalent that could bring in uh, log information from different systems to see what has happened to the data and what the lineage and provenance is. Yeah, haven't haven't come across a, a good one yet, but definitely looking for it. Well, maybe we should start um, a company to do it that way. Yeah, right. I have been thinking about that too. <laughs> you, you interview all these people and like, I like this. He's got these good ideas. Let's, let's put them together and create a nice little package for people because I think it's a, it doesn't need widespread from everybody who I've talked to. It is. It is a big problem. So um, yeah, we should take that offline. Maybe. <laughs> and tell me, what are your views on the data monetization piece at the moment? Well, I'll tell you what, it's a very interesting time to be in this world. And in healthcare, it's just, it is quite, I don't know what the word for it is. There's a stigma around it. If you are monetizing, and I use the word monetization loosely here, 
It could be for direct sale. It could be for the models that you might create off of that data that you could resell. It could be I mean, various data products, if you will. And then also the monetization, even internally that you, you do that you can build back internally for the products that you make. But typically we're hesitant to, to get too aggressive there again, because it's patient data. It's data that they're giving us. We do believe that they own the data. And, you know, if they, if we had some consent that said, Hey, we might be using this for those purposes. And they said, yeah, go ahead. Then maybe it'd be a little bit different, but I don't think, and I know we don't do that at our particular institution. And I think also even in research where they do consent, I say this a lot within the, the places that I go is that the, there's this competitive and cooperative pressure that happens for research. I mean, we want to be cooperative because we know if we share ideas, we share data, and we have these larger data set that is going to make it more powerful. Cancer patients in particular, you know, you don't, one institution isn't going to have enough data to do a lot of the analytical work. They're not going to have the numbers. They're not going to have all the things that we need to really tackle cancer at this global level. So they, they want you to share data. And there's a lot of consortiums. There's a lot of things out there that are great. But on the research side, it's also very competitive. And even in health systems. So if you start to do that, some people might say, well, you're giving away some of your strategic advantage. If you're a large cancer center, you're a large whatever disease, and I'm, I'm picking on cancer just because that's the world I used to live in. It's difficult to say, well, I'm a big cancer center. Why would I take away, you know, I, I do 40% of the X amount of cases in the country. Why would I give that to the other people only doing five or 10%? It doesn't seem like, it, it doesn't seem fair for them to do that. So why don't they build a consortium around them? So what, you, what has happened is you get these consortium of consortiums around data. And even sharing it is hard. I mean, just because you have a bunch of data doesn't mean it's automatically going to work for people. So there's a lot of effort you'd even have to build those consortiums. So there's a lot of the, you see the, like, um, what is it? England has their, um, I can't remember what they call the 100,000K, where they're collecting all these patients across the country. And so the government is funding. They're the ones that are doing it. The United States is trying to do, it's called a PMI, used to call it Precision Medicine Initiative. Now it's called something else. Anyway, I think there's um, some places that I'd be hesitant to go to them because they think they have data that is valuable for them internally and they won't share it. So monetization for us is a word that isn't necessarily, you're never going to see a press release from us saying we're doing it. If we're doing it, we're going to do it in a way that makes sense for our patients for the the health system and we would do it to you know provide better quality services not a, just a direct transaction that says we have a thousand patients here pay us 100 bucks a patient and we'll give you our data that's not going to happen and there are some people out there that do that definitely i've seen places where they the stance that they've taken and down to the contracts is that the individual data is owned by the individual but any aggregations is owned by the company Right. And think of those business models, right? I don't know some of the things that you've run into, but think 23andMe, because again, we're in healthcare and genetics. Part of the business model is, you know, they sell direct consumer services for genetics, but then back end, they will consent with you and you have the consent to this is to aggregate that data. And then they have pharmaceutical companies that will buy it secondhand for their research. A lot of the genetic companies are doing that. Well, they'll, like you said, aggregate it on the back end and that's part of their business model. That's how they get their venture funding. That is that they're going to get back end money after collecting that data. So again, a healthcare system would necessarily do that unless again they had pretty strong reason to that's right and that's where it gets tough because the aggregation and reuse of data in that way it can lead to interesting findings and new applications and better patient outcomes but it can also not sure and i think you know if you don't know exactly what these pharmaceutical companies are doing with that data or think of it started here but then it moved to somebody else and that now that data is in the wild I don't know if you've seen some of the press clippings recently about people who are running from the law. So they're people that have done bad things and somehow they can use these, they have the DNA at a, at a crime scene and they can ask those companies to go into their databases and say, hey, have you seen the DNA that looks like this? And they can start to look these people up or family members. Because again, the thing about genetics is you can start to find individual locations that you can tell relatives. So even though I didn't consent my genetics, my sister did. Like she gets on Facebook, um, she knows some things, they know we're connected. They have her DNA, they went public. All of a sudden I am known too. When you get down to that DNA level, it's a little bit different than your typical patient information. And it's never been considered in the United States protected health information because there was no way at, at any point to re-identify you. The protections were if I had my genome sequenced and I put it on a disc and I took that disc and I put it out in the middle of the street and somebody picked it up, 
they have no idea what it was me because they have no other database to reference me. Just see a genome and they would have no idea to re-identify me. Now with these public databases and these other databases that could get out in the wild, if there's a breach, now all of a sudden all it's opened up. Now if you put my disk in the middle of the, of the street, somebody can take that and look at a public data set or the data set they might have gotten and truly re-identify me. So there's a little bit more, we eventually think as a health system, as genetic people, that eventually it will be very protected because it is truly the footprint or the fingerprint of who you are. That's right. And that is truly one of the problems that's coming up. When you join enough data sets, you can find out exactly who that person is and what they're doing. And this case, their whole history. Yeah. And there's companies out there now that are, the word they're using is avatar. So they can construct enough, enough information about everybody who looks like you, the populations in individual places that it might not be you, but it's someone. So if they have little things about you, how old you are, what your race, ethnicity is, they can start to find out things that about you that you might not know. And it's because of what you just said. They're starting to find these unique combinations of data. They can put the machines on it and they can start to build features about you that you wouldn't necessarily pick up just by looking at individual data sets. And they're building businesses around this. So, you know, if you're on Google and you're searching, they know pretty much who you are. And so that's why you get your ads are now more and more relevant because they're also now able to combine some other searches behind the scenes. Now, they'll, they won't broadcast that, but it's getting to that world where even those little snippets of data, now that you had data exhaust, you're on social media, that they're starting to pick those things up. And um, they're knowing more and more about the person you are based on some of the little footprints that you're, these, I call them breadcrumbs. So they're just kind of tracking. And when it gets into healthcare, yeah, then you start to get, get into, does this person respond to a certain type of drug? Does this person susceptible to things? So your insurance rates might change. I mean, all the things that people are scared of. Again, that's why we protect our stuff so heavily. And again, back to the monetization, once you let it out the door, there's always that chance that it could be used for other purposes. Not that we would want that or think that, but there is always that risk. That's right. Where do you think this is going? What would be a good solution to this problem? Where is your head at at the moment? <laughs> if you think about it as a person, and I'm talking about this as a not a data person, as a just a citizen of the world, you can think about it two different ways, right? And I think in any of these cases, you can think of the positive side of it, which is better treatment, better products for you. You you have all these really catered personalization that can happen and your experience in the world would be better. On the flip side of that, if you look at nefarious things that might happen, have you ever read the book? I think it's called Weapons of Math Destruction. So it's about taking this data and there's some biases in the data that they're getting. And if you use that data for personalization, you're just continuing to make those the biases worse, right? So if you're an underserved population and the data says you're underserved, they serve the people who can pay. Well, they're, you know, all of a sudden you're creating even a worse a widening of the gap. And so I'm more concerned with that than I am of, is my information going to get out there and are they going to raise my interest rates or something like that? I think that would all balance itself out. But it's those other other items where we already have a kind of a gap between the haves and the have-nots in a lot of areas. Is this data going to be used to widen that gap and almost in a way that people don't recognize? So because we're surrounded by all this now, your iPhone tells you what to look at. Your you know, Facebook is filtering your data feed based on things you like. Anecdotally, there's a funny story. My aunt, who's probably in her 70s, 70s, 80s, was on. She's a Facebook friend of mine, right? I'm very rarely on it, but she had posted something that said, why is Facebook always showing me cat videos and um, these certain people? I, I have 150 friends and I only see the same seven, right? I see cat videos in these seven same people. Well, it's because Facebook knows what you like and they're only going to show you the things that you do all the time. So her world was just like, that's all she saw. And that's, you know, so not scared is not the right word. I just feel like that could get we're already experiencing this with a lot of problems. I think like we're widening that gap and we don't even know it. People don't know it. And they don't even know how to fight back. Ah, I love that you said it like that. We are widening the gap and people don't even know it. And that's exactly what one of the big dangers with the algorithms is when we carry on the biases in the data. Data is capturing the biases of how we have acted in the past. And then through the algorithms going that at scale, it perpetuates the problem and makes it even worse. In your current position and with the work that you guys are doing, how are you tackling this problem of the biases in the algorithms and the widening of the gap that could happen as a result? Well, I think it's back to the scientific process. It's back to the type of people we want is to question everything like to and to have people that have different opinions. You want to have a pretty diverse set of people. And again, in medical, you want the geneticists are obviously going to be biased to the genetics. The genetics says this, but you might have a clinical person who says, well, wait a minute, that data was collected for a, a particular population where that's not representative 
of what we're dealing with. So the way we have to tackle it, and it's not always perfect, is is truly by creating these diverse teams, by questioning everything and not us being dogmatic with the approaches that we're taking. I think on the research side, we're a little, the clinical research side, we're a little bit more sophisticated than others might be because that's the way it's been done for quite a while before all these really sophisticated techniques have happened. I mean, the scientific process was built to try to get around that. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, and there's a lot of uh, research out there that probably doesn't question everything, and we have to take those with a grain of salt. But I think by having peer-reviewed publications of this stuff and having due diligence and even creating environments where we can we can find synthetic data to test and, and to get into the, I say, the more um, traditional approaches of uh, testing our, our hypotheses and making sure that we're not we're susceptible to those biases. And then, you know, finding, again, collaborations with others who can test it outside of our little, again, within a health system, we're in you know, Virginia, we're in, we're in D.C., but hey, let's take what we did, again, back to the Providence, say, hey, very easy for us to now port that to the East Coast, to Europe, to whatever, to try this, uh, to see if it, it holds true, and really trying to test it and not being afraid to. The whole scientific process is that it's not still not proven true until probably never will be. You can always be gone back at and, and tried to be proven untrue. And, and in fact, I think that's a lot of the thing about these new techniques. So the first thing we ask people when they're, they're, they're promoting their models is, how often are you updating? Are there ways that um, you're able to correct your model almost in process. Like you're not, we're not having every six months to go through and revalidate it. What are the things? And again, typical people, when we're in the health system world, the executives don't ask those questions. And so again, we, we, we get brought in to kind of kick the tires and say, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Or how are we testing this? We just can't let it into the health system and start to prescribe patients these things when we're not really truly understand what the ramifications of those are. Definitely. And then I guess that that sort of leads into reproducibility of the research. Is that an area of focus for you guys? What are your views on the reproducibility? I think anything that we do, there's an eye on that. Particularly in the data world, there's other types of research that's going on at ANOVA where I don't know if that's the focus. But for us, you know, a lot of the data now, if it's especially if it's a, a nationally funded research study, we have to be able to put the data set public or that's the intention. So people and then having if it's a code, you know, having that, you know, on a GitHub repository or someplace where we can publish it so that people could very easily go out, pick up the data set, know the provenance, you know, how it, how it moved through, use our, our statistical tool to reproduce it or say if you had a data set here's how you would apply this particular algorithm to your data set and again for for the our area of genetics and genomics it's very new and so some of it's prideful to put it out there for people to test and put it through the paces because it's really really new stuff there is a, a focus on that that's really great one of the things that i, I really like about your background is the way that you've been able to integrate data and business from the get-go in, in your career. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about what were some of the, the lessons learned, things that you learned early in your career when you were going through the trial by fire, as you mentioned, of going to companies and helping them redo their, their reports and their databases and et cetera. What were some of the, I guess, mistakes and lessons learned for you during that time? I think the first one is um, sometimes perfection is the enemy of good. It would take us so long to get through projects because we were trying to be perfect. And a lot of times we needed to integrate. We actually being very communicating with the business very often, not waiting till we got to the end where we thought something was perfect. And then went, oh, no, that's not what I asked for. So very early on, it was this, this more iterative approach. And at that time, there wasn't like agile methodologies or things like that. There wasn't any kind of like best practice there. It was really, like you said, trial by fire. And the lessons learned early on, I'm one of those people that likes to write to look little bit. And so I would write these things down in more of a, like my Evernote is so big right now from old things that I can search on because again, you'll forget that. So there's a lot of that. And then the other thing I think I learned very early was to kind of build, I was called mental models of what we were doing. So again, again, very, um, think of them as very picturesque. Like I would build these workflows visually. So think Visio or things like that and put them into a framework. So when I was tackling a certain part of a project, I didn't lose the context of the entire project because we were constantly moving from project to project. So you had to put it into some framework to understand where you were when you were bouncing and thrashing through multiple projects. And so that's where I tried to learn a lot of things. And then I pick up I don't know if you do any apps, like um, think the software as a service apps that help you before. Let's see what, what are the ones I use now. So Evernote's one of them. There's one called Real Time Board. So these places where you can go and just dump information. I would have that and I could always go back into that repository and pull it back out. I didn't feel like I was so overwhelmed with information in my head that I couldn't keep it straight. So those are the types of things I picked up, doing a lot of lessons learned, putting things in a framework. So I always had context of what the hell was going on when you, know, you might be working 12 hour days and flying everywhere. And then again, it was kind 
constant iteration with the business, not waiting till the end to give them something. It was constantly asking for feedback. So you didn't get so far, waste a lot of time and energy, get frustrated. It was like, okay, I mean, this might not be right, but, and then that comes back to the trust. I mean, if people are expecting perfection, you very early on, you have to tell them we're going to work together or set the expectations of how you're going to work. And I think in the data science area, that's something that you know, we're promoting a lot with this iterative approach. And in the agile world or in the venture world, it's like minimal viable product. Like what can we get done to prove that this thing works end to end with a framework? And then we'll start to target individual areas where we can make improvements. So that was something that I think I learned intuitively early, but have tried to improve upon as we get better. And then and then you have to train people to think that way or help them frame it that way. When again, they might, might not be seeing the whole entire project. They're just doing that one specific thing in the lineage of this project. So it's also, it helps to provide context for the people that are working with you. That's outstanding. I love that approach. Having those mental models definitely, definitely helps. And I'm a huge, also a huge fan of Evernote and definitely do a lot of brain dumps there. And I usually go back and keep working on notes and expanding. And what was the other app that you mentioned? Well, there's one, it's called Real Time Board. If you go on Chrome, if you, if you guys are Chrome users, if you go to their app store, it's called Real Time Board. So think of this as a map of just things and you can draw, you can put in documents, you can share it with others and they can collaborate. So it's like a, kind of got a Google a feel to it because you can watch them real time work with you on things. So it's a, but it's visual. So you're not kind of hardened to the Evernote. It's more of a document type of thing. This is like, think of a large map that can just expand and contract. And the other one that I like is these mind map tools. I don't know if you've ever used MindMap. So I had used one called MindJet because it was it could integrate with some docs. So if you're writing chapters or you're writing SOPs or you're writing things, it's a very good way to logically write certain comments or and not worry about the format yet or where it's placed. You just know you have to keep that in your mind and then you can drag and drop and then export it to a Word doc. Those types of things. So like these little hacks that you spend a lot of your minutia time trying to document and nobody likes to document all that much. Only documentation people like to do that. But you have to have it in order to make the product again like to the reproducibility. If you don't remember how you did it, some people are better at it than others. I just happen to use hack tools. And then, and then at the very end, I'll polish it or I'll hand it off to someone to say, if this makes sense to you, then we can do something. If not, let's format it. So those types of tools, I like the interactive ones, the ones that you know, it's not an eight by 11 grid. Evernote's great just because you, you can get it to it from anywhere. Any tool that has a hack tool, I <laughs> love. That's brilliant. Oh, I can totally relate. So we're talking about the, the lessons learned just before that. And I wanted to ask you, in your career, has there been an apparent failure at the time that actually gave you lessons that took you to greater success down the track? Or do you have a favorite failure that in the end ended up being sort of a blessing in disguise? I think a lot of the failures that we've had come back to the this redundancy aspect of things. So and really engaging with the business to understand what they're like, not not making assumptions on what they're actually truly asking for. So again, it's an iterative component. So like failures where we generated a particular data set for someone and spent all kinds of time formatting it. And let's say we just say we made it very, so this is a for context here. We created uh, forms for cancer that were very detailed. We just took what they said almost verbatim and put it and just regurgitated it to a form. It was a nuance to cancer research that we didn't have the expertise in, but we took the requirements as literally gospel and didn't put any thought into like, is that truly what they wanted? And we got again back to the end. It probably took us weeks and weeks and weeks to build these forms, to put them in XML. And then we started to do the team term wouldn't be machine learning, but we then started to collect this data and we started to figure out patterns in it. So we got all the way. We were very happy. We're all going to high five. Like we're going to show this to them. They're going to love it because then we can find all these errors and we can improve the performance of the data entry and what they're going to see when they, when they do the analytics. And we showed it to them and they basically, um, I don't want to say they threw a fit. They're like, that is absolutely not what we wanted and they picked it apart so we had wasted weeks of development time where we should have you know kind of broken it up and said okay here's what we're going to do show them the plan show them that framework said here's how we're going to propose this here's some mock-ups quick and dirty types of things and instead of trying to get to embrace our technical geekness and do all these really sophisticated things when that's not really what they want and I would tell you that I've done that a fair amount of times because sometimes you get in the moment and sometimes they're not available and you just have to, you want to be productive. And we've done that a fair amount of times where you, I would say we use technology a little bit more for the geekiness of us than for the benefit of the business. And then it doesn't make sense. So I think that's a, a lesson we've learned a handful of times. That one just hit me, it stung me because um, it was the first time we had done it for that project. We thought we were ahead of the curve and we were just not even on the same curve at all. So we learned our lesson there pretty heavily. I can totally relate so much. <laughs> And I've definitely done that 
more times than what I would like to admit <laughs> in terms of, yes, you do get excited and run with things sometimes. And that's where I love the way that you put it when you said perfect or perfection is the enemy of good. That is brilliant. <laughs> that is a brilliant one. Uh, right. No, thank you for that. Now I'd like to step back a little bit and go to some, I guess, rapid fire questions or, or questions to get your illicit advice for the listeners. And one of the things that I really liked about what you said before is your focus on teaching in the data space and building relationships through that. Do you have anything else that you think makes a great data scientist that is additional to that communication and engagement piece, which I think is fundamental. Uh, but is there anything else on, on your side that you look for in great data scientists? Again, I think one of the things we find is we find a lot of technical talent. So I think, and sometimes it's uneven, sometimes it's either overstated or understated in certain areas. But I think what we really look for, not only in the communication with the business, but then how you explain your results. You know, how are you communicating what you did and why you did it that way? And again, back to, I think, your question of the biases. Can you critically think about why this is the right answer? Or maybe there is no answer that you could come up with. So someone who can communicate those technical aspects of what they did, why they did it, and um, tell that to both their peers, the people who would understand maybe more of the technical details, but usually we have a business owner, we have someone who's looking for something. You know, can you explain it to them? So again, that's that. How you do that could be different by the, the business question that you're trying to answer. But you know, those those scientists that you know think about that, the end result of what they're about to return in the process of doing it. And they're always thinking about that. Like you're gonna have to prove this to someone and you're gonna have to explain your results and you're gonna have to question the methods. Those are the types of people that we would like to bring in, even if they don't know all the answers. And so the other thing would be a very humble person who is a, it wants to be a team it wants to, to be part of a team. So we don't want scientists who just want to take the data and then they magically appear at the end. Can they collaborate? Can they ask questions? And again, can they help other people? If they're a senior person, can they help juniors? If they're a junior person, will they be humble enough to go and ask the questions or, or speak up if they don't understand something and, as opposed to you know, trying to figure it out themselves? And it's great if they can, but if they're spinning their wheels, we also don't want them to be frustrated. Definitely. Such good points. Such good points. And what about uh, data science leaders? What do you think makes a great data science leader? Again, I think it's a listener when you want to listen. I will say that the ones, the, the people that I've seen are the ones that are truly encouraging, but they also know when to put their foot down. So they have a little bit of both. They're empathetic to a certain point, but then eventually they understand that, yeah, we got to get results. It's not about, again, the perfection. You've got to take a stand, make a point, and then have some kind of uh, momentum. So we've seen both sides. We've seen people that struggle and they just continue to grind and we don't get any results. And there's some people that go so through quickly that they don't thoroughly think. So the leaders have to understand the mentality of both types of data scientists. And I'm being very um, two sides there. There's usually a gray area between, but uh, those types of leaders. And then, and again, they want to make their team members better. So then they can find ways that they can supplement, you know, their learning. They can find a, a nice article or paper or website or hack that can help that person get through them and let them and not truly like force them into something. Just you know, have that little nuance, nimble of, hey, this is something you should be thinking about. Learn this and really think about those scientists as they grow, because there's not a lot of truly 100 percent well-rounded data scientists out there. So they really need to grow people. So those are the types of leaders that we like. So true. That is excellent. Tell me, what are you most excited about in your work or your professional life at the moment? Well, I think, you know, we're really excited just about the opportunities that um, there's just a lot of really cool things, a lot of really great targets that we have to go after in healthcare. There's a lot of things that we think we can make an impact. And there's a lot of others who are doing things that we would love to understand the knowledge and bring it into healthcare. So I think there's just a lot of really good things. And we've seen a lot of individual work in the genetic space and in the uh, the biological space that is very encouraging the, the, the way that we can impact people. And for people like me who don't have the, I would say the degrees in any of those things, it's really makes me feel like people who can be connectors, can understand that whole life cycle around the business of, of a lot of these technologies, they can make an impact in healthcare. And I don't know if five, 10 years ago, that was something that was, there wouldn't be the ability of someone like me to do that. 
And so I, when I go and speak and when I do these things, I encourage people that, you know, if you have a drive to help people in the healthcare space, to help people live healthy lives, you don't have to so you have to have a degree in it. You don't have to be a genetics or a, have a biology. I have a high school biology background. I'm not a clinician. I wasn't, I don't have a medical informatics thing, but I, I hope to have made an impact here. And so I'm encouraged by, you know, all the new work that's being done in these areas and how it can be applied and the types of, of talent that we're seeing that can learn this very, I would say easily. But there's a there's a path for people to learn this without having to spend 10 years in college. That is an extremely exciting, extremely, extremely exciting. Tell me, in your view, what are some of the future challenges that we're going to have in our industry? What are the thing, the challenges that you think are coming up? Well, I think, you know, when you, we look at some of the models that are coming out, and again, in healthcare, we tend not to trust any of them. It's really trying to understand what the math or the, the algorithm is doing and not make it so um, kind of that black box effect. If we don't know why it's saying this, how do we prove that it is what it is? So if you put a bunch of this data together for, again, biology and patient and uh, environment, and you, you get this algorithm, it's like, hey, this is really, really predictive of a particular condition. We have no idea why. What are the ways that we can start to open those algorithms up to understand the technical under opinions of what it's telling us to do, and then have the proof that we can start to implement these things in healthcare. Because a lot of the times, the other things that we've seen where we're, they're trying to apply other algorithms that have been done in other industries to healthcare, particularly in this more machine learning, you know, we want to take a bunch of data, find some insights, and, and then try to make some predictions, is that typically they don't know why they're predicting what they're predicting. In healthcare, it's harder. If you're trying to get people to click on ads, or you're trying to get them to do things in a business context, that's one thing. I mean, you want 10% more people to click on it, that's fantastic. My wife does social media stuff. And so we're playing around with a lot of things that help her engage and predict you know, when people are going to open up emails and great stuff there. But when you're in healthcare, you don't want that. Healthcare is not good for uncertainty. If you're going to get a drug prescribed to you, or if you're going to be in the ER, if you're going to be under the knife, you don't want people with a 10% lift on a prediction. You want pretty close to certainty that that's going to work. The data or the math can tell you it's going to work, but if you don't know why or that one time out of 100 that it doesn't work, that you can make the appropriate response to it. So there's a little bit of that black box problem in healthcare that will slow down the that AI learning concept in healthcare. And it's a risk averse area. So to me, what I would love to have happen is for a little bit more transparency or these algorithms to help us understand why they're doing it. It's part of the algorithmic development part. And then also, I think there are certain aspects of what we can do currently that will be very great for healthcare when it comes to some of the more certain things that we can return back to patients. But what my concern is, is again, back to the 23andMe's and all those other things, is that we don't want to have something that gets returned and we don't know the secondary impact of what we're doing. My thing would be you give somebody a, a change in the way that we treat, let's say, diabetes or some of these more chronic diseases, but we don't understand the ramification of that. Like we tell them to take a certain drug. Well, that drug also has a side effect that we didn't realize because the data wasn't available for us to analyze that kind of thing. So it's a secondary effect of the first thing that we do, which is different in healthcare than it is in, well, if I click a button or I buy a shirt because the ad told me to do that, that's one thing. I mean, your, your husband or wife might be upset because you bought something you should know because they targeted you right. Okay. But if I take a drug and I don't realize that drug in five years is going to cause me to have a uh, another heart condition or to, you know, I'm losing weight, but my heart's now beating twice as fast. Anecdotally, that's that doesn't occur, but something like that. Like we don't understand the ramifications because we didn't have the data to prove that that treatment costs something else. And so biased data isn't going to tell us, you know, all the other issues that we have with data science isn't going to predict that. It's that how do we mitigate the risk that something we do that could be true could not impact another thing because we're very complicated as humans. We're not linear. We have all these other concepts that are in the environment. There's other things that impact us. So that's my concern with AI and some of this other data science stuff that we could would apply to help with treatments. But again, I think that's something that the industry is looking at quite heavily. I think there's people that think about it that way versus you know vendors who might sell you some tool that, again, they're just worried about their sales. I think that's the other concern I have is that we get, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen that you know aren't medical and they're, they oversell what they're providing us. And if you're not really thinking about it or there's not some you don't think they're they're magic. So that's the other, that's actually probably 20, 30% of my job is to kick the tires on things and make people think about that. And then they make us think of the business of this and what kind of return they're getting. That is brilliant. Thanks a lot. I only have one last question for you. I know we've covered our ground and it's been extremely valuable, but I wanted to ask you, what would be one takeaway or piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with? Again, I think in these interactions as a data scientist and as someone who's going to be dealing with data is, again, to think about 
a couple of things that aren't necessarily the first things you think about, which is being part of teams, understanding that concept of things, not being dogmatic with what you do. So always questioning and being an inquisitive person, not just in what you're doing, but then how you're doing it. And again, lastly, you know, not trying to be a perfectionist particularly in this area and, and looking for feedback and being on podcasts like this, always thinking and trying to challenge yourself with other ways of doing things would be my recommendation. That's sometimes you have to do it because you have to, you know, you get laid off from a job or you, you have to kind of be creative. But I think if you use that as a methodology and you think about ways that you can make yourself better that are say non-traditional, I think you'll be a better, better, more well-rounded data scientist going forward. Definitely, definitely. This has been outstanding. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for all your time and for sharing your insights, your wisdom, your journey. Absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much for that. Well, thank you for having me and uh, best of luck to everybody out there as they uh, continue along their path. Too kind. Thanks a lot. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate, or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y. So F-Y-R-E-B-O-X dot com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes if you like this episode it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you thanks again and see you next time